tired of men monopolizing the word mansplaining. We are here to provide relief from the drone of men explaining to women what it's like to be a proper lady. And instead, we are here to tell you how to be a proper man. Welcome to Mansplaining, an explication of hypermasculinity in pop culture. I'm Kay Grossman. And I'm Brittany Walker. This week, we are covering Con Air. Brittany, how many times have you seen Con Air? A lot. Like, cannot count on my fingers or my toes. It was my jam. It was an alt- like an alteration between like this and The Rock. When- See, I've actually never seen both of those, and Con Air actually completely escaped my like consciousness. I kind of didn't know it existed. It was just one of those many Nicolas Cage films, and... So Here they didn't play Con Air at the JW Lock-Ins. We didn't actually have Lock-Ins. I was always very jealous of people that got to go to Lock-Ins. That is like the Mormon thing. That's how you meet your wife and husband. I think that's to just be. evangelical Christian. Yeah. They love their Lock-Ins. There is no one that I love enough to stay in a room for that many hours. It just seemed like there was a lot of candy at Lock-Ins. We should not be talking about this right now. Back on topic. Okay. So Con Air was made in 1997. For those of you keeping track at home, it is 20 years old. Not quite old enough to legally drink, but almost. Almost. And the director was Simon West. And if that sounds familiar, that's because he did Black Hot Down, Tomb Raider, and my favorite, Never Gonna Give You Up, by Rick Astley. So, uh, fun fact, Con Air has never had a sequel. But Simon West is open to it. Um, He would do a sequel (laughs) if it was completely turned on its head. Uh, He said in an interview in 2014, for example, Con Air in Space, a studio version where they're all robots, or the convicts are reanimated as super convicts. Um, He says if it's clever writing, it could work. Um, So therefore, he's telling you anything's possible. Which I really enjoy the fact that he mentioned clever writing as if that was something that like occurred in the original Con Air film. <laughs> um, as if like if we can do Con Air justice in like the we can perfect do just how bubble, brilliant it was the first time. We have yeah. to like have to recapture the brilliance of Con Air. So as I was researching, I realized that the producer was Jerry Bruckheimer, which obviously I'm like, oh, that's a guy that does things, right? So I Wikipedia him, as all reliable researchers do, and he has produced or directed probably everything that you've ever watched. And his his little grummy hands, his gross little probably unkempt fingers, nails, have been put in like every like reality TV show and like in movies and in probably Alias. Now that I'm thinking about it. He was in, he did Amazing Race and Survival. Yeah. And. Not Big Brother, though. Not, not Big Brother. Not Big Brother, which. Travesty. 
actually makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I really actually enjoy the mental uh, can the the head canon I'm creating of the J.A. Buckheimer version of Big Brother. There'd be a lot more explosions. Yeah, um, it would be a lot more intense, a lot less just like watching people sleep on BB cam, and <laughs> like he would probably make it where it would be like a very cult environment. Like you can't sleep, you can't eat. Let's see how long you last. Let's see. Let's see when the survival instinct kicks in. You start eating each other, like <laughs> Lord of the Flies shit. Yeah, 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 for sure. But like in like a Hollywood mansion house. Um. So Con Air was very successful. Uh, it had a budget of seventy five million dollars, um, and a gross profit of a hundred and one million um, domestically and two hundred twenty four million worldwide. So. This was was a fan. Yeah, and it, it didn't get many honors. It was nominated for both Best Original Song and Best... Oh, my God. <laughs> Can I tell my story? And, yes. Holy shit. And I know most of this because I used to be an avid watcher of Behind the Music, like, as in that was my fucking jam. It was my shit.com. And so... There's a rivalry. Rivalry? Rivalry. I mean, I don't know why I'm trying to say a, a word that has two R sounds in it. So I, I don't know. It's very hard. Very, very hard. Rivalry. Um, so Trisha Yearwood is the person that did the theme song. It was like the theme song that was made for this, right? And like Trisha Yearwood was, you know, like older and she was having like a little thing with Garth Brooks, who's like the, you know, you, you know who Garth Brooks is. I know, is. but aren't they married now? Don't they? She has a. She was a homewrecker. I know that was a big deal. But she has a show on Food Network now. She has a show on Food Network now? I know that. Side note Roxanne Gay fucking loves uh, the Barefoot Contessa and hates Jada De Laurentiis. There's your uh, gossip for the day. Yeah. Anyways, um, go on. Food Network. So, Trisha Yearwood uh, sang the song and it was beautiful and it was like, and tell me now. Anyway. And then Leanne Rhymes, who at the time just released like one of her first singles, which was um, Blue. And everyone was like all like hating on Leanne Rhymes because he's like, girl, you a baby and you singing some Patsy Cline, the fuck? Anyhow. And Leanne Rhymes is like, I want to do this Trisha Yearwood song. And they're like, girl, you ain't ready. And Leanne Rhymes was like, bet. And then she did the song, literally released it at the exact same time as Trish Yearwood, some throwing shade shit. It was a thing in country music. And now Trisha Yearwood has a Food Network show. Yeah, and what is Leanne Rhymes doing? Who the fuck knows? Not uh, cooking on Food Network. Not cooking on Food Network is so true. Or she has three successful cookbooks. I it, Wikipedia is a dangerous place. I'm I know. Learning so much more than I needed. Let's go on. Okay. So, um, well, I understand why it would receive such a a high quality re- uh, award. Did it win? No, it didn't. It didn't. It just got nominated. Did you um, see what what won? Titanic. Oh, because it was nineteen ninety seven. Yeah. So Titanic, really, anything released in nineteen ninety seven just went to Titanic. Yeah, I mean that's the same reason Independence Day didn't win several of its awards. It was nominated oh, for. Right. Remember? That so. was that was a big blockbuster that year. Was a big year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to let you do the summary. Okay. So basically, Con Air is like snakes on a plane, but with convicts instead of snakes. Side note, I've never seen snakes on a plane, but 
the title's pretty self-explanatory. I'm sure you probably got enough on from like gifts. Yeah. Like you got it. Like it's like Samuel Jackson and I'm tired of these fucking snakes on this fucking plane and like you got it. That's the movie. That's that's all I need. That's the entire movie. It's just like Anaconda. There's a snake. It's pretty big. Only on a plane. This time with convicts. uh Um, Nicolas Cage plays the title character Cameron Poe who's an ex-army ranger convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to eight years in federal penitentiary. He's on a flight, he's being released for parole, and he's on his flight home to freedom. Unfortunately, he's on this flight with lots of people who want to take over this plane and get one last shot at going to a country that has no extradition agreements. Uh, The snag in this plan is that American hero Nick Cage steps in and saves the day. With his really, really awful southern accent, I want to know who his accent coach was. I will say I learned that uh, he was not originally written as a Southern boy. That was Nick Cage's addition to the character. Oh, well, that was such a good addition. Actually, I contacted my linguistics professor because I was like, what fucking dialect is this? Because I have never heard this accent ever in my entire life. And he was like, uh, hmm, to be determined. T-B-D. So there's a lot going on in this movie. I didn't think I would enjoy it as much as I did. I actually, it was a fun movie to watch. It was basically like a thrill ride. Mm-hmm. And it actually gave us a lot of food for this episode. So I'm pretty excited to start talking about some of it. Let's talk about how Nick is gay. He's Nick, like, Nick Okejo so is. There's, there's a lot of homoerotic subtext that takes until the end to kind of resolve itself back into the heteronormative family can plot. I, can I do a little callback to um, another movie we watched, sure. um, Top Gun, yes. in which everyone was like, Top Gun is gay as hell. And we found out that, like, not really. Like, it's more of, like, this really close friendship. But the gayness in this movie is very, very different. So, yeah. So we see the leader of this gang of convicts, the mastermind beyond the behind the plot to take over the plane, is Cyrus, played brilliantly by John Malkovich. Basically, Nicolas Cage spends the first half of the movie flirting with Cyrus in an effort to gain his favor and thus be able to subvert this plot. So so you see like a lot of jealousy come out and it is only at the end of the movie when we find out that it, it's not that they find out that Nicolas Cage is a good guy. They find out that he's going home to his wife and kids and that's this that keeps being what that return to heteronormativity is what betrays him. So I really like that theory, mostly because like throughout the entire movie, Nick Cage is that's what I like to call my buddy Nick. We Nick, Nick Cage. Yeah, yeah, Nick Cage gives like some sultry looking eyes at John Malkovich. Like he is just about to like jump over those airplane seats and like get to business. And, I mean, it is the same way as you see classically in a lot of movies where the femme fatale goes in yeah. with a, goes in and flatters and works with the the lead or the, yeah. the main villain, either one, to get their way. I love that. He's doing the same thing. Yeah. And, and it works. It works. I mean, he's, he's able to get away with a lot more. He has a lot less, quote unquote, supervision. Than the um, other the other individuals on the plane. So I was reading um, an article, and I just wanted to like give this pulled quote from our reliable research that we've done uh, besides Wikipedia, which is 
alpha male, Cyrus, who's the bad guy. Yeah. You know, he's like the mastermind. He's super duper smart, et cetera, et cetera. Is openly fawned over by other convicts. So he is like the guy, capital TG. And they become jealous when Poe begins to be a magnet for Cyrus's appreciation, comments, and gazes. So when the alpha dog kind of starts really fawning over Poe, all the other convicts are like, this isn't okay. Like, yeah. we were your favorites. Where's this nobody come from? Yeah. Which I, I think is like really, really interesting dynamic. Um, Especially given that this is an action movie and action movies tend to really play up masculinity. Exactly. Um, for sure. But also, we, we've talked a lot about the homoeroticism of these movies, so this is just another example. For sure. Okay, so one of the things that I really noticed in Con Air was this critique of the criminal just, justice system. And yeah. I went down a really bad rabbit hole as I was researching for this just because it's something I'm really passionate yeah. about. Um, do you want to set it up real quick with why this is an interesting choice? Yeah, sure. So um, in 1994, um, famously, Clinton passed the three strikes rule. And what it was, it was like if you have two prior convictions, sometimes they're violent, sometimes they're just deemed serious, and we know how arbitrary that is. Uh, on the third one, you could be sentenced to life. And uh, the intention was that it would bring down crime rates kind of like the broken windows theory. If we get all these small crimes and then like just put them in jail. Major crimes won't happen. Major crimes won't happen. Very much so. But of course, that's just not how reality works. Um, in 2004, they kind of went back and they did research and they found that it actually had no impact. Surprise. Um, later, they found that what did have an impact was three years prior to um, the three strikes uh, law being implemented was uh, a lower rate of alcoholism and alcohol consumption in addition to lower unemployment, which I found shock when people can, can when people have a living wage, they don't go out and commit crimes yes, to survive, which is incredibly frustrating to me. And I'm going to get on that Cheeto fucking bandwagon right now. <laughs> so, you know, we're kind of returning to this broken windows. We need to stop crime-esque mentality. And simultaneously, we are cutting social programs. Mm -hmm. And there are there's evidence after evidence after evidence. The thing that decreases crime is providing resources to people who don't have it. And it's infuriating that this was happening in 1994 and is still happening. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, absolutely. So... This movie really exposed uh, criticism in the social justice system through Poe. And I'm going to let you explain that a little bit. So it's kind of upsetting, actually, because Poe is a Southern, white, middle class, or at least lower middle class man with substantial amounts of social capital and privilege. Yet he's used to really highlight the wrongful incarceration rates. So this guy, he is made out to be golden child. He is an army ranger just coming home. He gets in a fight defending his pregnant wife. He is, he kills a man in self-defense who is wielding a knife and gets a absurdly high sentence because the judge is basically afraid of him. With your military skills, you are a deadly weapon and are not subject to the same laws as other people that are provoked because you can respond with deadly force. He is a human weapon as with his army training. 
he is a model he's a he's a model inmate he learns spanish and origami and lots of things while he's in prison like he is as straight as you can play them unlike everyone else on the plane who is as repeatedly said criminally insane like these are all serial rapists serial murderers um uh drug kingpins like what one thing i really found in, um interesting when speaking of insane and, and specifically mental illness is we always talk about who's the big bad mm-hmm. right because you know these movies are very much an us versus them and in this one if you think holistically the big bad is mental illness elaborate i'm not um, sure if i buy it yet yeah so cyrus is obviously mentally ill in what but in what way is he actually mentally ill because he's clearly is he just a psychopath? Yeah, like they were talking about, like he was saying, um, kind of like how smart he was. Yeah, he is. And uh, no he one got his law degree him. in prison. Cyrus is a poster child for the criminally insane. He's a true product of the system. What's that supposed to mean? What is he? One of these sociology majors who thinks we're responsible for breeding these animals? No, but I could point a few fingers if it would make you feel comfortable. Yeah, like that kind of stuff. And then you have Steve Rashibi's character who is also considered mentally ill. Um, we're going to get on to this, but also wrapped up into this is Sally Can't Dance. So it's it's kind of the fear of the unknown, and that unknown being the, the mind and what people are capable of if they're not considered, you know, sane. Hmm. Okay, I'll buy that. Um, I do think it's really interesting in this movie how it plays a lot with who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. Yeah. Um, because John Malkovich plays a great villain. Um, so does Steve Buscemi. Both of these men have killed many, many people. Both of these men are arguably very bad. But also, John Malkovich is funny and charming, and Steve Buscemi is just just weird and quirky and doesn't seem like a serial killer. Um, He's fascinating. And, like and I wonder can't... and I, I wonder how much that ties into race because it's the white criminals that are funny and charming and like, oh, they're not that bad. You know, they just killed 23 people. Whereas the Latin, the the people the criminals who are people of color are characterized as brutal um yeah. So I wonder I wonder how race plays into the I honestly the didn't notice that. But even like Dave Chappelle, for example, yeah. lit a motherfucker on fire. And it's not played for exactly for laughs the way the other brutal yeah. like brutal shootings um, are. The other main African American who I can't think of right now spends the majority of his time trying to like beat down the good guy, which mm-hmm. is Poe. Um yeah. so like, you know, we see incredible amount of diversity in this film, probably the most diversity that we've seen so thus far. But yet the the people who are white are written to be more complex than just villains. Yeah. The black character that you were talking about is Diamond Dog. And not only is he not only is he more brutal and given zero sympathy the way the other characters are, he also is um insinuated to be the type that would lead a race war. Yeah. So it it's a weird it's a weird portrayal in how they portray the white characters versus the characters of color. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of race and how they are portrayed, I want to talk a little bit about Johnny 23. Yeah, absolutely. So there's this really Johnny 23 is a serial rapist. 23 refers to the number of convictions he's had for rape. 
though he charmingly says, if they knew the true number, I'd be Johnny 600. And notably, Johnny 23 is a Latino man. Calling back again to motherfucking Orange Cheeto, whose major, one of his major pieces of campaign rhetoric was, Mexicans are rapists. They're coming across the border as rapists. So it's, it's kind of upsetting that that is the characterization. Um, and he's also the most singularly focused. He's, uh, he's played by D- Danny Trejo and Johnny 23 doesn't take the opportunity to help dig out the plane when they're trying to dig out the plane and, and fly to freedom. Instead, he goes back to rape a female god. So like that is his sole motivation. It's not freedom. It's got to get out and rape those bitches. Yeah. And speaking of the women in the film, you know, there are two. Uh, there's the guard, and the guard is essentially Nicolas Cage's only reason for staying on the plane. Yeah. Bes- besides the diabetic guy. Which we will get to. Which we will get to. But yeah, um, he, he's on the plane. He stays on the plane so she, he can protect her honor because he knows if he's not there to protect her and help her be released, she will be raped. Don't treat women like yeah, essentially like protecting her purity as if like she protecting has... Protecting her honor. Yeah. And he, he blatantly says he's protecting her honor. Yeah. Um, and then the other girl who's his wife, um, at the end, just like in all my video games, he is rewarded with a kiss from her. And she is very much like the angel in the house, like perfect. She waited for him while he was in prison. Yeah. He raised their, she raised their daughter. They wrote together. She said they wrote back and forth. She sent packages. Um, I would like to point out that also the god also rewards him with a kiss on the cheek. I didn't know if you noticed that. So that's same thing where it's that's that's the reward you get as the male protagonist hero is you're rewarded with the love and adoration of the damsels in distress. Yeah, and honestly, I completely forgot about the kiss on the cheek from the guard mm-hmm. as as being his reward. One of the most complicated and interesting things. So I probably haven't watched Con Air since I was in my teens, um, like 13, 14. Can we say you were much less woke when you last I, watched it? I was much less woke. One thing that I'm finding as I'm like rewatching this is like, God, I don't I don't remember that. That mm-hmm. shit is that troubling. And that's the case, I would say, for Sally Can't Dance. Yeah. So Sally Can't Dance is... And, and I'm trying to use my language very deliberately here, A what appears to be a trans woman. she I'm, I'm saying this because a lot of the literature and a lot of the reviews from the time say she's a transvestite, but I don't think that's accurate because, A, that's not a word we like to use, um, and B, because it seems like the representation she puts on herself is of a woman. The first thing we see when she gets in freedom is she goes into a residence, searches searches through clothes, finds a dress, and puts it on. And so it it seems like she wants to be seen as a woman, so I'm going to call her a trans woman, and I hope that's correct and inclusive. So that being said, it's both – she is so complicated. So on one hand, she's just – she's the lowest level criminal there. She's a drug dealer. Um, So you're – she's being equated this – her gender dysmorphia, if that's what it is – is being equated with seal killers and psychopaths. And so it's pathologizing mental illness at worst, or at best, it's making her comic relief. On the other hand, during the last fight, and actually all the way through, she is treated as a woman. Sally Candance is standing in the way of Nicolas Cage 
um, from getting to the cockpit and helping rescue the plane. And they're fighting. And Nicolas Cage deliberately does not punch her because you wouldn't punch a woman. He slaps her. And it's upsetting because it's played for comic relief, but also it's him acknowledging her as a woman. So where does that leave us? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's definitely a gray area. Like much of this film, actually. Um, How does... I'm trying to think of how Sally Can't Dance's plotline is resolved. Do you remember? I feel like uh, she has freedom at the end. Because there are some folks that that got free. I hope so. I'm trying to find it in the the Wikipedia, but I can't find it. Anyways. I don't... Like, I think that's the thing is... I, I don't remember anything being said about her or, or shown. So maybe there was no resolution. She was just there for, and and I'm thinking back to like, you know, we, we started this podcast because my dad and my dad's like super hyper masculinity. And, and so oftentimes I'm trying to think of like, how did my dad respond to this? Like, since he is kind of the demographic, you know, um, for these films and, yeah. For him, it was definitely comic relief. For him, it was this crazy fruit who is dressing like a woman. And I think that's, I mean, I think the intention. I think that's what a lot of, cross-dressing is still played for laughs. Yeah. Look at Beauty and the Beast. You haven't seen it yet, but there's. I did, yeah. You did see it. There's there's a scene where in the final battle, there's two characters cross-dressing. It's still played for laughs as something that's ha-ha look at this guy or as a way of emasculating men and instead of saying like this is a legitimate gender representation right um, i i think the same like i watched mulan with my kids like a month ago and i remember seeing the end where they all dress like women after mulan has spent the entire time dressed as a man mm-hmm. and i was just thinking about like <laughs> for a disney movie like how complicated like that entire mess is like trying to unravel that um it turns out that gender representation is really confusing yeah so i told Kay that i had to end with this yes this is very important to bring this was so important to me to preface i am a diabetic i was diagnosed when i was 20 years old and the entire fucking plot of this movie hinges on this guy being a diabetic. Baby-O, not not Connie, not, uh, not, not Poe, yes. Uh, Baby-O is Cameron's cellmate. Yes. And best friend. Yes. And he, okay, there, I'm going to start at the beginning. First, beginning, he's like, I got to get my insulin shot, right? And for those who don't know out there, this is how diabetes works. <laughs> Diabetes for beginners, <laughs> as it were. You have high blood sugar. So before you eat, you take insulin to lower your blood sugar. When you have low blood sugar, and that's when you're like sweating, you're really hot, you're super weak. Like for say, for instance, you wouldn't be able to like walk and that guy was like crawling at some point. That means you have low blood sugar. That means that you need a fucking cookie, not insulin. So the first problem I have with this is that they were, like, going around, and he's like, I need my insulin shot, and he's like, left arm? You don't put insulin shots in your arm. (laughs) First thing, Jerry Bruckheimer. Bruckheimer. (laughs) Second is, like, the entirety of this film is, like, Poe trying to find an insulin needle for this kid, and, like, 
they didn't eat anything on this entire eight to like 12 hour journey. So if he's suffering from anything, it is low blood sugar, which means that he just needs to eat some bread. And I feel like he could find bread more easily than a uh, needle. Than an insulin needle. And and I, I wouldn't mind if this was like a cool side plot, but this is like literally the reason. This is his motivation. Be It's saving his friend's life and protecting the guard. That's his motivation for staying on the plane and for getting the plane grounded. And it's, I mean, it has less to do with a sense of like, overarching justice and more to do with saving these two people. Yeah. Um, I, my immersion was ruined, you know, like I really, I wanted to root for these convicts or the Poe or like whomever I'm supposed to root for, but I couldn't because I was so distracted by this incorrect information. It's true. Throughout the entire movie, you were just like, that's not how it fucking works. It, well, it's not. And maybe you should, I don't know, do a quick Wikipedia search before you fucking write screen. This movie, let me check my stats, $101 million. The budget was $75 million. And you're telling me a scriptwriter couldn't fucking Google that shit? I mean, no. Technically, no, because it's 1997. But open a book. Go to a library. Like, there are simple things you can do to become informed, even before smartphones. I think I'm done. Don't worry. Whenever there's like a lupus subplot, I'll be all over that shit too. So. Well, there you go. I doubt. <laughs> I I cannot think of a movie that has a lupus subplot. I bet there's a Wikipedia page. There's a Wikipedia page for all the films featuring diabetes. There is. So I bet there's a Wikipedia page for all films featuring lupus. We'll see. Uh, stay tuned for that rant. Hey. So, okay. Yes. Since we're ending. Give me your best Nicolas Cage impression. Absolutely not. Just like, give me nope. like one real good, like, put the bunny back in the box. Like, just like one. Why couldn't you put the bunny back in the box? Nope. Put the bunny back in the box. Why couldn't you just have put the bunny back in the box? Yes, that That's bad. Me so happy. That's real bad. Um, Aww. so thanks for joining us, folks. Um, as always, we need to give some shout outs. So, thanks to Kenny Kenny OO for use of our theme music. Add 60 seconds to the vegetable test. Uh, for more of their music, go to kennykennyoo.bandcamp.com. As always, please look at our Facebook page. Um, it is at Facebook search mansplaining uh, that we put up some good work and bad selfies and some real clutch gifts. Yeah. My, my gift game is like On really. Point. I'm, I'm really, like, last year, my goal was, like, get good at selfies. And, like, this year was, like, have a stockpile of good gifts for every situation. And I think I'm really owning that goal. You are. Um, we're also on Instagram, Twitter. Find us on any social media. Or go to club for back episodes and for show notes. Thanks, Brittany. Thank you, Kay. Uh, we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.